In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. When Jesus is asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, he doesn't direct them to stand in a certain posture or face a certain direction, stretch out their, har- their arms at a certain degree or fold their hands in just such a way. Rather, our Lord Jesus actually gives them a prayer, a set prayer. When they say, Lord, teach us to pray, he doesn't simply say, well, whatever is on your heart, just speak that to God. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, but that's not how Jesus teaches prayer. We have a set prayer given by Jesus, and yet if you compare this version of the Lord's Prayer to that which we commonly speak, to that which comes to us from the book of Matthew, there's a bit of difference there, isn't there? So that even though it is a set prayer, it's not as if we must get each word and each syllable or even each petition in every single prayer we pray. So, for example, you see in in this, right off the bat, the very first phrase is different. We're used to praying, Our Father who art in heaven, and here you simply see Father. Likewise, in, in this account, you have the third and the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer omitted. That's all fine. Now, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, the very first word is an all-important word. He teaches them to address God as Father. This isn't simply the Father of all creation, who is our Father by virtue of the fact that he's made us all. If that were the case, then we would have God as our Father in the same way that an amoeba and a snail and a skunk do. Right? Because he's also their Father. He's created them. He's created us. That's not in view here. What's in view is the reality of baptism, where Jesus says that we must be born again by water and spirit, born into the family of God, no longer part of the family of Adam, but now through water and the spirit, made into the family of God, sons and daughters of God, adopted by the Father who is in heaven. Thus new creatures, a new creation, sons of the living God. So we cry out to him, our Father. It's a baptismal reality. To be baptized into Jesus is to be baptized into the Son and thus have God the Father as our Father. One layer deeper. To be baptized into Jesus is to be buried with Jesus and raised with Jesus. Now we see a hint of that in our our epistle from Colossians chapter 2. Even more explicit in Romans 6, that through baptism we are buried with Jesus and raised with Jesus. 
Tie this idea in with something Paul writes two chapters later in Romans 8. I am sure that neither life nor death nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is to say, what has happened to you by being baptized into Christ is deeper than even life and death. Baptism negates life because it is to be buried with Jesus. Similarly, baptism negates death, for it is to be risen with Jesus. Which means whether you are in life or in death, even deeper still, you are baptized into Jesus. You are a child of God. So that whether in life or in death, you can never be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That means more fundamental to our existence and perception and reality than even life or death is our relationship to God, our Heavenly Father. Which then makes prayer central and essential. One thing constant, whether in life or in death, we will be speaking to our Heavenly Father and He to us. Now, in baptism, that's precisely also where God writes his name upon us. Each one of you, baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That name written upon you so that now you are a son of God the Father. And look what Jesus teaches next. We pray, Father, hallowed be thy name. Now, God's name is certainly holy in itself. There's no way you're going to dirty that but he's written his name upon us and we're praying that he would keep his name holy among us. How is God's name kept holy? When the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, it's the first part, and the second part, when we as the children of God lead holy lives according to it. So right doctrine and right living. Because we're Christians like father, like son, we bear our father's name upon our foreheads in holy baptism, and yet we know that on account of the sinful nature in us, we can't believe or live as we should, and so we pray that by his power, God would get, grant this to us. Father, hallowed be your name. Next, your kingdom come. Perhaps a better way to think of it would be your reign come the reigning of God. This is fundamentally a prayer that we would receive the Holy Spirit ever more and more. And this because the world belongs to the unholy spirit, the God of this world. When we pray, let your kingdom, let your reign come, we're saying, come and take over and be the true God. Kick out the one who is called the God of this world. And in place of your unholy spirit, in place of the unholy spirit, drive him out and place in your holy spirit. That we may rightly believe your word and live holy lives according to it. So, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And you'll notice too then that the way Jesus teaches prayer is this. The very first petitions here are about God and what he would have done your name, your kingdom. Only then do we turn to our needs. 
Give us each day our daily bread. And the Catechism reminds us that here we are praying that God would grant us everything we need to support our bodies and this life. But even deeper than that, we know that God gives us everything that we need, not only for our bodies, but also for our souls. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. And so we are fed by him, we are sustained by him, we are filled by him. He is the answer, by the way, to we who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are satisfied only in Jesus, who is our righteousness, the very bread of life. So when we pray, give us each day our daily bread, we're praying for Jesus, and we're praying for all the blessings and benefits needed for body and soul. One of the most profound things that the Catechism has to teach us on this point is that God will give daily bread even without our prayers. In fact, he'll give daily bread even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. What's going on here is incredible. God gives daily bread to everyone, even to all evil people. So you're driving down the road and you're looking up at, at all the mansions on the hill and you're driving for mile after mile after mile and there's more and more and more and you're thinking, why do the wicked prosper? Why do God's people just scrape by? And then you turn on the TV or the internet and you see all the celebrities and all their terrible and godless ideas and you think, why on earth do the wicked prosper? Same with the politicians, isn't it? <laughs> Why do they get paid so much? Now, that can put bitterness in our hearts real quick. But here, when we pray that God would teach us to realize that all things come from him, we see it differently. It's only part of the meditation, but maybe it's the most, part of the medita most important part of the meditation. That is, namely, that God provides even to those who hate him and, and provides abundantly because he is just that gracious. Because he is just that good. And we can see reflected in that that he who provides daily bread and wealth and abundance even to those who hate him has also provided forgiveness, life, and salvation for we who have sinned so deeply against him. It changes the whole worldview that we have into one of God's grace and mercy. And in fact, just one more way in which this changes your whole perception about everything. You can perceive all of life in the way of law, which typically in our language is the way of expectation. And then you're constantly embittered because all the people around you never quite meet the expectation. And even when they do, well, they've only done their duty. So recipe to at best get to a neutral place, but usually to be upset about, it, about everything and everyone. That is the way of viewing, viewing the world, viewing your life in the way of the law. Now, in the way of the gospel that is here in this petition, give us this day our daily bread is the way of seeing everything as a gift that changes our whole perception. Now where bad things happen to me or things aren't going as I see fit, it's like, well, I deserve temporal and eternal punishments. But every time a good thing comes, you say, God, be praised. This is his pure grace. This is pure gift. And all of a sudden, any good thing that anyone does around you, God, be praised. This is his gift. It's a gospel way of viewing life. 
Jesus goes on, and forgive us our sins. This is how we're to pray. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If God was our angry judge, we wouldn't make a confession to him. Let him do his own work. Why incriminate yourself? But since God is our heavenly father, we can come to him as, as dear children, come to a dear father, and we can confess our sins and say, God, these are all the things that I've done, and these are the things that I've left undone. Have mercy on me and forgive me. Such a great line out of our epistle reading, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and following. There Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of debt that stood against us. Think of it. Every last sin that we've committed. Every last omission. And the way the devil usually works is he has one or two or three major sins on your heart and on your mind. Picture those written there in that record of debt. And see what St. Paul says. He has canceled that record of debt by nailing it to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus becomes the record of our debt and is nailed to the cross in order that God might set it aside forever. Full and complete forgiveness. And therefore, we pray that he would forgive us our sins. And that forgiveness is not just to flow to us and stop with us. That forgiveness is to flow to us and flow from us then to all those we meet in our lives. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Last but not least, and lead us not into temptation. No sooner has God forgiven us our sins, and plan A is, let's not sin again. Dear Father, lead me out of temptation that I am so prone to go right into. Keep me from temptation. When I am there, pull me back. It's very much the same as when Jesus dealt with that woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Do you remember this? Jesus is teaching. There's a whole crowd gathered around him. And they come dragging a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they throw her down at his feet. And Jesus begins writing. He says, Lord, we've caught him. Or teacher, we've caught him. Uh, we've caught her caught in adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus still writing, he says, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he goes back to writing. One by one, beginning with the oldest, they leave. What was he writing? I don't know. Maybe he was writing the record of debt. <laughs> Maybe he was writing down their sins. One by one they leave, and Jesus says, Who is there left to condemn you? She says, No one. He says, Neither do I condemn you. That's his absolution. Then he says, Go and sin no more. Father, forgive us our trespasses and lead us not into temptation, that we might not sin. 
This is all very explicit in 1 John, I think it is, where John writes, these things are written that you may believe... Oh, no, that's the wrong quote. Where am I going with that? What does he say? I write these things to you. Ah, I was close. I write these things to you that you may not sin. Can you believe that? I write these things to you that you may not sin. That's plan A. But if you do, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our Savior. Jesus goes on to teach them then about prayer. We'll do this quickly, much to your relief, no doubt. (laughs) Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Yet I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now all the interesting details aside, what's Jesus' point? Simply this. If even a sinful human being who has every reason in the world to stay in bed and not help you will eventually get up and help you, then how much more your heavenly Father? And there's this beautiful word, impudence, and if, we, if we're translating it correctly here in the ESV, then Jesus is inviting us to be persistent, impudent in our prayers. And that seems to be borne out by what Jesus says next. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Look at all the active language. Ask, seek, knock. This is good and God-pleasing and in accordance with Jesus' will and teaching. And look what wonderful promises he attaches. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Ah, so does that mean anything I ask for, God will give me? How about a Learjet? Or winning the lottery? Well, let's see what Jesus says next. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What's Jesus getting at? Well, at least least by way of tangent, this. If you ask for a serpent, he's not going to give it to you. Nor if you ask for a scorpion, will he give it to you. Your Father in heaven knows what's best for you, and he knows what what you need. Ask for a Learjet, ask to win the lottery. No, those things aren't good for you. But what father among you, if his son asks for a fish for a good thing, Well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent, a bad thing. And what father among you, if if his son asks for an egg, which is a good thing, will instead give him a scorpion, which is a bad thing? If you then are evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you? Never that which harms you, only that which benefits you. I was always a little disappointed in this last part as a child. 
how much more will the Heavenly Father give anything I want, anything I ask? No. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the greatest of all gifts. That God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would send forth the third person of the Trinity, God Himself, into our hearts to indwell us, to fill us with His Word and power. There's nothing greater. And if He will give us even the Holy Spirit, will He not also give us all other beneficial and good things? The scriptures say no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God in human flesh come to redeem us except by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies us and keeps us with the whole Christian church in the one true faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful encouragement that we ask for the Holy Spirit. Think how differently God wants us to live. That he would lavishly pour out upon us the Holy Spirit. How differently it would go for our families. That he would lavishly pour out the Holy Spirit. How different it would go for our church and for the larger church. That he would lavishly pour out his Holy Spirit. Let us then ask him, knowing that he is good and he will surely give it. That's what Jesus has to say about prayer. God be thanked and praised. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.